the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. We're back in London this week after our brief excursion to Hamburg with Linton Nightingale for the Global Liner Shipping event. Our container kingpin, James Baker, was also out there with him, and I'm delighted to say he's joining us on the podcast this week to report back. We also have in the room podcast regular Anastasios Adamopoulos, still reeling from the excitement of the MEPC meeting at IMO last week, and a special guest appearance from Janet Porter, former chief correspondent and current chair of the Lloyd's List editorial board. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. So it's been an interesting couple of weeks, and I want to hear your thoughts on MEPC and the global liner events you've all been attending. But uh, I'm going to start with you, Janet. Um, you've been having some interesting conversations with our old friend Robert Yixel Yildirim. Now, uh, the conversation was um, characteristically colourful, I guess. You know, he's an interesting guy. He failed to win his bid on the Long Beach Container Terminal. That may not sound like a huge news story, but actually. There's a lot of politics at play here, isn't there? There's a huge amount of politics. Mr Yildirim is very angry. He made that very clear. And he, basically because he thought he was going to get it, he'd done a lot of lobbying. He really wanted this deal because for a long time he's had his eye on the US market. He wants to build a container terminal business in the US. And Long Beach Container Terminal is like the state-of-the-art terminal. It's the biggest in the US. It's the most advanced. And he never expected it to come on the market. And the reason it did is a lot of global politics behind that. But he had been doing a lot of lobbying in Washington. He'd spoken to the Long Beach Container Term, Long Beach Port Authority. He'd spoken to OCR, who was the seller, and um, even Macquarie, who were effectively his competitors. But also, he was trying to buy some terminals off them as well. So it's a very complex story. Mm. But putting it all together, he was absolutely convinced he had won. Mm. So because of that, he pulled out of the deal to buy three terminals from Macquarie. And because he couldn't afford both deals, together it would have been $3 billion and he could only afford about the $2 billion for LBCT. And at the very last minute, Andy Tung of OCL phoned him up and said he had failed. So he said he was absolutely flabbergasted and shocked. He asked for the reasons. One of them he was given was the price difference. He said, well, it's just a $20 million price difference. I could have bridged that easily. Another one he was told was that um, it was a minimum quantity um, commitments he'd made, but he said, but I excluded CMACGM from that because I'm a shareholder, I could have addressed that problem. Third reason he was given was possibly because of his nationality. Um, he said, I'd already been to Washington, I was assured there was no problems with my nationality, and he was, and I have that from other sources as well. Mm. So finally Andy Tung said, well actually also Costco um, decided last minute they would go for the Macquarie deal because Macquarie is part of an Australian bank. China and Australia have a big bulk trade and they wanted to protect that. So that was what he thinks really happened. He thinks Macquarie lobbied lobbied the Australian government who then went to Beijing. Mm. And that's why he lost. We might never know if that's actually, but he's convinced that's what happened. I mean, Yildirim is something of an anomaly. I mean, the, the ports business is and has been for many years, quite corporatised and consolidated. There's a number of big players and they tend to snap up all of the, the main ports. There's you know a few niche players out there. Yildirim is big. I mean, he's a, he's a wealthy individual, but he's part of a Turkish conglomerate that does many things besides ports as well. But ports is his real passion. But there's always been politics around ports, particularly when it comes to American ports. 
you know, it would be naive of him not to assume that there is at least some geopolitics at play in terms of who gets what. There may be, but on the other hand, he is about to sign a deal in Mississippi um, for a Gulf, a Gulf port. So therefore, um, it's, you know, he is able to get into the US. It's not a bit like, it's not like a replay of the DP World situation mm. you know, a few years ago when Washington was not going to get let so-called Arabs into the US because they thought it was a security risk. He's, um, he's got a lot of American interests already. Mm. As he said, his children have got American citizenship. And he was told, and I was also told by another source, that it wasn't anything to do with him being Turk Turkish. So there is something to his, his suspicion that there, was, uh, there are other forces at play. One rather suspects that uh, if, if the rest of the industry hadn't been media trained within an inch of their life, we might get more interviews like this. He's um, uh, refreshingly honest, shall we say, when he comes to talking to journalists. Absolutely. No, he was very, very blunt in how he felt. He's, he feels very strongly about this and he didn't mind you know, expressing his views in public. Mm. He feels let down. He feels he was misled. Um, you know, he, he used all the, you know, he was very passionate in his interview. And he really does want to get in the US because he wants to be a top 10 container terminal operator. Yeah. And he feels that was, he feels he needs a presence in the US. Or funny enough, a lot of the other, several of the other top players aren't there. It is a difficult market. Yeah. In the LA Long Beach complex, most of the container terminals are actually controlled by ocean carriers, not other terminal operators. APMT being the exception. Mm. But LBCT is one of these unique, it is actually a unique facility in the US. It's automated right from the start when OCL signed a deal with the Long Beach um, Port Authority. They worked with the union. So the union is very anti-automation, but they seem to have overcome that. So this has got, you know, it's got automation. It seems to have the union on side. It will be able to open, um, handle the very biggest ships when they eventually get onto the Pacific. And as he said, it was a one-off. These opportunities don't come along very often. Yeah, exactly. Seems like a, a good segue to, to move on to James. I mean, you were out in a Global Liner uh, event last week in Hamburg. I mean, this is an event that's growing every year. It's, uh, it's an impressive lineup of uh, people talking about it. You made the point in your uh, editorial this morning that you know digitalization and sulfur obviously dominated proceedings and perhaps that's you know a question of stating the obvious it seems every event at the moment is is dominated by these discussions but with a distinct container flavor i think you know and, and this there are some real issues that need to be discussed i think oh absolutely and uh, i mean yeah the, as lars jensen the conference chairman pointed out there were, there were two sort of elephants in the room uh, during the conference one, one being digitalization the other being IMO 2020. Um, with digitalization, we were fortunate enough to have a, a, a launch event for the Digital Container Shipping Association at the conference. Um, this is the new standards body for container shipping in terms of setting digital standards, setting a, a platform for which other um, providers, vendors, operators can, can join in and to try and find a, a, a way that a number of competing systems, competing IoT devices, that type of thing, can all talk to each other and operate so that we can push forward this, this move to digitalize container shipping. A, lo a lot of the problem at the moment is that there are so many competing elements, so many uh, competing standards. Um, this is the carriers coming together 
to set the rule. Um, we've now got nine of the, the largest carriers involved in this. So this has been a really productive step forward. It's, it's very early days and it will take several years, I think, before there are standards out there. Um, but this is something that is, is really important. Um, if, you, if you go back to the early 1990s, um, the, the GSM Association standardised the, the GSM code in, or standard in about... GSM uh, for the benefit of non-techies. <laughs> this, this is the say, global system to move mobile originally, but the mobile phone standard um, that we all use today. Now that was only standardised in about 1991. We've, you know, 30 years later we've got you know, something like four or five billion devices out there using that standard. So it shows what can happen if you get devices able to talk mm. to each other. Um, so yeah, this is an important step forward and hopefully we will um, see some progress out of this. I think it, it is it's hard to underestimate exactly what an impact this could have if it gains enough gravitational pull. As you say, you know, the standardization issue you know, may not be the sexiest from the outside, but you know, this is really what is going to make or break any kind of big ticket move towards digitalization in the industry. And realistically, we're looking at digitalization across shipping, but there's only a few areas that we can actually look at it really taking off as an initial force. Containers is kind of it. You know, it's the, it's the one place where you've got enough consolidation, you've got enough money, and you've already got um, you know, burgeoning collaboration between the shippers, the ship owners, and various other counterparts. You also have a supply chain that is really begging for automation and yeah. digitalization. There's an awful lot of container shipping that's still happening at the moment on bits of paper mm. um, or on Excel spreadsheets. And one of the issues is for something as simple as a port name, um, the three-letter code for a port, now that for Rotterdam, for example, can either be ROT, RTD, or RTM. That's fine if you're human looking at a bill of lading, you know that that cargo is going to Rotterdam. Mm. If you're a machine looking at that, then suddenly computer says no because there is there's no standardized model there. Now this is what the DCSA is wanting to do. That will then allow automation, uh, things like blockchain to become come and be utilized far more effectively if everybody is talking about the same thing at the same time. Mm. So, you know, it has got potential to, to, to make a lot of changes in that supply chain. We made the point in the, uh, we've been running a current series on Roy's List, uh, ideas to revolutionize shipping. And you know, we're, we're talking about innovation, we're talking about decarbonization. Uh, I recommend reading uh, to, to any of the listeners, but um, it, we're doing that in advance of our Nor Shipping Forum, where we were holding an innovation forum. But this idea of collaboration is key. Uh, you know, for all the talk of uh, emissions, technology, hydrogen, and new fuel sources, Actually, the really important bit, the, the difficult bit, is around collaboration and this integration of a digitalized supply chain. And as you say, I think really we're going to see the most progress take off within container shipping and then it'll filter through to the rest of what is still essentially a very fragmented industry. So it's hard to underestimate quite how important this is. So a bit of a coup for the global liner guys getting that <laughs> launch uh, exactly. Alice, um, you, you're perhaps less exciting in terms of the uh, the fireworks, but uh, I, I know you love a good MEPC. Mm -hmm. Did we uh, did we get any progress uh, in between the bureaucracy? Um, you mentioned in your uh, editorial this morning that uh, you know the, the right direction is 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 obviously coming out of a lot of the discussions, but actually logistically we're running into a time constraint here. You know, MEPC is not set up. To, to deal with the volume of stuff it needs to consider between here and, frankly, 2050? Well, 
Yeah, well, that's what I think, at least with my somewhat limited experience dealing with MEPC. I mean, last week's meeting was probably one of the more rushed ones or stressed ones that I've been a part of. Um, and as I, I wrote, I don't think that really falls on anyone's lap. There are just way too many things that they're being asked to decide on, mm. um, not the least of, of which is emissions. So as far as the emissions are concerned, within the time frame that the IMO has given itself, um, which is to introduce new short-term measures by 2023, well, they're, they're still on track. They completed this important, very political procedure for uh, measuring the impacts of proposed measures on states, um, which, you know, depending on where you stand, that was a big deal uh, for a lot of the organizations, uh, you know, the shipping lobbies, or it doesn't really mean all that much uh, if you're on the environmental side because we didn't really decide on any of the proposed measures like speed limits. Um, so it really depends on your point of view, but we are still within the given time frame. Mm. It's just more of a question of how many times are we going to have a repetition of this meeting whereby you have four or five other important topics you need to discuss and the schedule falls behind and you know the chair needs to keep reminding people that we're out of time and countries eventually come out sort of disappointed for not having time to uh, express their views in, in some cases. It's a difficulty the IMO has been struggling with for some time, even before the volume of work around greenhouse gas emissions became a priority. The calendar of IMO events and the volume of input from its 174 member states, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is yeah. just phenomenal, uh, yeah. you know, particularly focused on the big committees, the MSC, the Maritime Safety Committee and the uh, Marine Environment Protection Committee. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they've only got a couple of uh, opportunities per year at best right. to do this. And right. the introduction of intersessional groups and additional mm -hmm. sideline events and all the rest of it. The bureaucracy is an enormous burden on, on these countries. And, and you know, we've said it before, but frankly, you know, the fact that 170-odd member state governments can agree on anything is a minor miracle. Mm -hmm. This is a very big and complex topic that is going to require some serious debate. And it's not clear that within the current structure they're going to be able to achieve that. Yeah, and I think... Of changing anything with the IMO structurally is very difficult. So I don't think we should expect um, a massive change in the way MEPC conducts itself. Mm. Um, MSC, for example, which is the safety committee, often meets for 10 days mm. instead of five. Now, one could argue that the, uh, the MEPC had five days on preliminary, so-called preliminary negotiations mm. on greenhouse gases. But the point is, as you said, it's not just greenhouse gases at this point. No. You've got the sulfur cap, which is... You know, I know it's coming, but I'm sure we're going to have some complications or some issues to discuss next year. Um, in this session, ballast water took some time. Um, we've got, you know, we've got several issues that are still will still be there. And you know, as the environment keeps becoming uh, in, increasingly important in shipping, um, this this committee is just going to have to keep dealing with more and more and more issues. Mm. And it's going to be under scrutiny even more. So. The scrutiny issue is key here. Yeah. I mean, arguably, most people who've been around the IMO for any number of years will, will vouch for the fact that actually this is an old story. The IMO mm. has always been overburdened. Mm. Probably the scrutiny has not been there. I mean, the notable yeah. additions this year were, yeah. A, ship owners within the actual meeting. There's some fairly high-level people um, coming down to MEPC. This is significant uh, and important for the commercial side of the industry. So mm -hmm. there's a lot more scrutiny from the industry. 
And of course, you know, the, uh, the publicity shy uh, mime artists who are uh, mm -hmm. uh, campaigning outside the IMO and, uh, you know, quite rightly you know, trying to bring some transparency to proceedings, they are effectively, you know, adding a layer of uh, complexity because this is a difficult and detailed and very complex UN debate. It can't be reduced to, um, you know, frankly, a, a mime artist rendition outside of uh, Albert Embankment. But they also have to deal with, uh, you know, the fact that the mainstream media is now looking at IMO, mm. and that that's an issue. Yeah. It's a difficult balancing act. Yeah, and like I said, it's, uh, I I would imagine that someone who's been in the IMO for long enough would come out to these people and say, look, don't listen to what you've heard. We made the progress we needed to because we are still within the timelines we suggested. The counter argument to that, and that a lot of these environmental NGOs and the protesters and a lot of the media that's been the mainstream media that's been following the IMO is that you're not conveying a sense of a sense of urgency that we mm. have a climate crisis. You're not taking any measures. You're just dealing with procedural issues when you should be every uh, taking every opportunity you can to actually take some measures uh, that could help us deliver on our commitment. So the next meeting is in 2020. There are two preparatory meetings strictly on greenhouse gases before then and another technical one that's going to deal with all environmental issues. Um, I really think that at the next MEPC in April 2020, they do need to take at least one measure that can show that they are actually capable of doing that. Um, and if they don't, I think that's, that's going to be a real big problem for them. Excellent. Well, thank you all very much. I'm going to take the opportunity to quickly remind you to read the Ideas to Revolutionize Shipping series, now available on Lloyd's List. But also, while you're there, sign up to the Lloyd's List Innovation Forum. It's on Monday, June the 3rd at North Shipping. It's free to attend, but the space is limited, so register for free on lloydslist.com. It should be fairly obvious on the homepage how you get in there. And I look forward to seeing many of you out in North Shipping in a couple of weeks. Uh, until then, thank you very much, and uh, we'll be back next week uh, with another podcast. Cheers.